Um, did everybody receive so far uh, in a handout? Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I was about to shift everything to my left. But <laughs> all right. Well, before we get started, let's open in a word of prayer, and then um, and then we'll get started looking at Paul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together once again this morning uh, to open your word. Thank you for this man, Paul, and what you did with his life. Thank you for uh, showing us his life on the pages of scripture. And we ask that this morning that you would help us all to uh, see his example and to take the uh, principles that we'll be looking at and apply them to our lives so that in our own prayer lives that we might be able to um, draw closer to you, uh, to, to love you more, and to show, have that love be expressed in our prayer lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin, uh, the first question we need to answer as you look at your sheet is, who was Paul? I just want to give a brief survey of who Paul was, um, and then we'll get into a little bit about uh, the prayer life of Paul. So you can see Paul, uh, the title of this is Paul, a man of remarkable passion. And we'll see that uh, Paul was a very passionate, passionate man. So Paul was one of the more significant figures in the New Testament. He, offered, he authored 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, these were letters that he wrote to the churches. And in these letters, um, they included many of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith that we hold today can be found in these letters that Paul wrote to the various churches um, that, that he uh, traveled to and knew about and wrote to. He was a missionary, uh, traveling extensively throughout Galatia, Asia Minor, uh, and Europe on several missionary journeys. Um, he was a church planter, and then according to tradition, he was a martyr beheaded by Emperor Nero. And all of this occurred in about a span of about 25 years. So Paul began as a devout Jewish scholar, and he tells us this in Acts 22 and verse uh, 3. When he's giving a defense before the Jews, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, um, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So Paul is telling the, these Jewish people about his beginnings as a scholar, a zealous scholar. At that, educated under Gamaliel, um, a man who is known by all the Jews as uh, being a scholar. So he's telling all these people that he is an educated Jewish man. Um, he is a scholar of Jewish tradition. And his early zeal, that zealousness for God that he's talking about, it led him to persecute the church. Um, so this is the first point where we see Paul's passion in the book of Acts, is we see his passion um, to persecute the Church of Christ. Paul, known as Saul at the time, is first seen in Acts chapter 7. Um, and if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 1. At this point in the book of Acts, um, the man Stephen has given his defense um, before the council, and he presented the gospel to them. Um, and then at the end of it, the people that he was speaking to in verse 54, it says they were cut to the quick. They were angry at what they have just heard. 
So in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they, the council, heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth in him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, that is Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And then chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So the first time we see Paul, known right now as Saul, is him standing there, holding on to the coats, watching the coats of the people stoning Stephen. And chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that he was in hearty agreement, not just as a bystander, just kind of standing there passively observing, but hearty agreement, in, in full agreement, wanting to see this man Stephen put to death. Chapter 8 and verse 3 tells us that Saul continues to pursue believers and to put them in prison. Chapter 8 and verse 3 says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So he didn't just leave it at that. He took that zeal for God, and that for Saul at that point translated to him persecuting the church, thinking that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing for God. He was taking these men and women, dragging them off, and putting them into prison. So we see early on in Saul's life that he's a passionate man. He takes what he believes and he goes with it. And at this point, he is persecuting the church. Now, as a side note, um, just as, as a side note, this actually leads to the spread of the gospel. And even in Paul's zeal, Saul's zeal at this point, in persecuting the church, God is using this event, which on the surface looks like a, a horrendous thing, obviously for these people and for the church. But chapter 8 and verse 4 says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So God, even at this point, is using the persecution of Saul against the church to spread the gospel all over the place. So even before he saved him, God was using him. And God was using these events to spread his gospel throughout the land. So Paul or Saul at this point is, is persecuting the church. And then we come to chapter 9. And I, maybe you can think of another one. But as I was thinking about this, I think that Paul's conversion here is possibly the prime example in the Bible of how God takes dead sinners and makes them alive. Saul, at that point in time, was having no consideration for Jesus or for the name of Christ, and yet we see in chapter 9, God breaks in on the road to Damascus and starts talking to Saul. And I think it's, it's miraculous, because he's on his way to continue what he was doing, to per continue persecuting the church. And in chapter 9, we're going to read Acts 9, verses 3 through 6, and then also verses 17 through 20. So if we take a look at Acts chapter 9... Verse 3, Saul is on the way to Damascus. He asks for letters um, to the synagogues at Damascus so that when he gets there, if he finds any belonging to the way, both men and women, he's gonna, his plan is to bring them bound from Damascus back to Jerusalem. 
So now he's not just staying in Jerusalem. Paul is expanding his area of persecution here, and he's now traveling to different cities. So he's on the road to Damascus, and it came about in verse 3 that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Saul is not searching for Jesus here. He is searching for people to persecute. And yet, in the midst of his intense desire to go and persecute the churches, Jesus breaks into his life and miraculously tells him who he is. So if we fast forward to verse 17 here, uh, God has spoken to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, and told Ananias to go and to, to find Saul. Ananias knows who this man is. They know what he is in Damascus uh, to do. Word has spread. They know he has authority to bind all of those from the chief priests, uh, to bind those who call upon the name of Jesus. They know this. But God tells Ananias, go find him. And God tells Ananias in verse 15 that Paul, or Saul at this point, excuse me, is a chosen instrument of God's to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So God chose Paul. Paul didn't choose to follow Christ. God chose Paul in the midst of, the, of Paul's zealous, passionate persecution of the church to go and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, the kings, and the sons of Israel. Marvelous. It's miraculous. And then in verse 17 to 20, we see that uh, Ananias departed, entered the house where Saul is, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So we see here in verses 17 through 20 how Christ took the passion that Saul had, that zeal that he had, and transformed it from persecuting believers into a passion for the Savior and for preaching the gospel. We see that in verse 20, it says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He didn't wait. He didn't sit around, wonder if it was a real conversion, wonder what he should do. He knew what he needed to do, and he immediately did it. So the passion that Paul has, we see it moving from persecution to preaching. And the passion that he had, that the zeal that, that he had for Christ, led him to accomplish what he did over those 25 years. And I think that Paul's passion can be summed up in his statement in Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11. He writes there in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that, my, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here is saying, everything that I had in my zeal as a Jewish scholar that I thought were gained to me in terms of social position, uh, the, the, the position among religious leaders, that's all lost for the sake of Christ. That's gone. And his passion, I think, is just summed up in these verses and, and with the focus of attaining to the resurrection of the dead, uh, being found in Christ, gaining Christ. That is Paul's passion throughout the 25 years about that he ministered and around uh, in his missionary journeys and the church planning and the letters he wrote for the purpose of the sake of Christ, for gaining Christ. His passion was for Christ. So that's just a little summary of who Paul was. And since our main focus here is prayer, um, we're going to look at, and if you follow on your sheet here, four prayer principles that we can get from Paul today. And we're going to do that by looking at four different passages, three examples of prayers, and then one in a letter to the Romans um, uh, where Paul talks about prayer. But we, I want us to see, before we dive into these things, I want us to see that that Paul's passion was not without direction. Paul did not leave a, lead a directionless life. Purposeless and unguided passion can be a waste of energy. Uh, because passion without guidance, I think, will result in that person being burnt out, possibly for a couple of reasons, either by taking on too much. Uh, you can think of a person who is extremely passionate for, for something. They're not really sure how to focus that, so they now take on too much. They get burnt out. Or they get bored by not doing anything at all. If you think of a person who is very passionate about all they do is talk about it without actually having any action behind it, then nothing ends up being, being done. But we don't see Paul doing that. We see Paul seeking guidance and direction uh, through, through prayer. So let's look at Acts chapter uh, 9 first. Acts chapter 9. Once again, just to look at, just to look at, to reinforce once again how Saul got, or Paul got to where he was. Verse 15 says in Acts chapter 9, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he that is Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. God chose Paul, even though, and even though Paul was called by the voice of Christ himself on the road, an audible voice himself, he still prayed for direction. And we see an example of this in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is before, right before the first, first missionary journey. Paul is in Antioch um, in the church there. And we see in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So even though we know that from chapter 9, that Christ set apart Saul for his ministry, we still see him praying for direction here with the leaders, praying and fasting. He's looking for direction. Now note here as well that the prayers of the leaders did not set Paul apart but rather they served to affirm the Spirit's choosing. The Spirit had already set apart Paul at that point. We see that in chapter 9. 
but they're looking for confirmation. So when we pray, know that when we are praying, as, as we, we're going to see in a little bit here, that uh, when we pray, we're praying that the Lord's will will be done on earth as it already has been decreed in heaven. And we see an example of this here. So Paul did not assume anything, but he demonstrated his trust in the direction of the Spirit through his prayer life. And we're going to see more examples of that in a second. We see that Paul was uh, a serious prayer. Um, he, he could say that he was a prayer warrior. And in, in chapter 13, verses 1 and 3, we see that his prayers, 1 through 3, excuse me, his prayers were accompanied by fasting. We see in verse 2 that they were fasting while they were praying. And then even after the Spirit chose Saul and Barnabas, in verse 3 we see them fasting and praying again before they lay their hands on them. So these, the, these leaders in this church in Antioch were very serious about their prayer, prayer, prayer life and, and, and their approach to prayer. And just a brief word about fasting here. Their, their lack of food, um, when someone fasts, we can say their lack of food while they're praying in this instance, again reinforces their dependence upon God. Um, the state of being hungry can be a very physically uncomfortable state. But in this state here, they're fasting and praying Again, restating their dependence upon God, their need of God for direction. Um, and we see them doing it twice here before they ended up setting out on their journey. We again see Paul and Barnabas fasting again in Acts chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. But in verse 23, um, they, they are, are, have gone through their journey. And now when they had, and it says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed, and fa prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they, they had believed. So again, we see Paul and, and Barnabas looking for direction in terms of who to choose as elders in these churches. And they don't just go about and do it uh, without praying and fasting. Again, showing the seriousness of their dependence upon God in this instance. So we see that prayer, prayer was extremely important in the life of Paul. The author E.M. Bounds estimates the value of prayer in Paul's life in this way. He says, quote, Paul's course was more distinctly shaped and his career rendered more powerfully successful by prayer than by any other force. We're going to look at four, four principles today. So now we're at number two on, on your sheet. Four prayer principles from the life of Paul. Um, and I'm excited for this because as I was going through preparing and reading um, this, this impacted uh, me a lot. Um, so I, I'm hoping that, that it, it, it can impact as you as well. The, there's, we're going to see some things that I think are pretty, pretty incredible. So four principles. The first principle um, is that prayer is to be with understanding. Prayer is to be with understanding. And to see this, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is an example of one of Paul's prayers at the beginning of the letter of Ephesians. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verses 15 through 23, and then we're going to look at specifically verses 15 through 17. So Ephesians 1 uh, and verse 15. Verse 15 says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This prayer here is for the believers in Ephesus. And we can see from this that Paul's prayers are heartfelt, thoughtful, and serious. So as we look at verses 15 to 17, the very beginning of this prayer, what is the purpose of this prayer? Does anybody see that? In verse, it's in verse 15 through 17. What is the purpose? What is Paul's stated purpose of this prayer? Yes. Yes, he wants them to understand or know something. How? What is he asking for for those believers in Ephesus? Looking at verse 17, what, is, what does he want them to understand or know? Yes. Good, that the Father may give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is a serious request here. And he's very specific about how he frames it. He's, he, he's, he goes into detail here, Paul does. Give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So we can see that Paul thinks through his request here. Paul takes this purpose and then expands on it in verses 18 through 21, where, talking, where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, excuse me, of the glory of his inheritance uh, in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power according to us, toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul thinks through his prayer requests here, and then he ends up expanding upon it. He does not just stop in verse 17, with give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, we can look at verses 18 through 21 and kind of get an idea of what he's talking about here. So Paul thinks through and understands what he is praying about. But then what is the ultimate focus of his prayer? We saw the ultimate purpose for, uh, in requesting what his ultimate request was for the believers. But what is the ultimate focus of Paul's prayer? And this applies to all of Paul's prayers. What is his ultimate focus? Yes. Yes, the glory of God. Christ, the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And when he expands upon his request, that's where he ends up. Paul ends up with the glory of Christ and talking about Christ and talking about Christ being, uh, having all things in subjection under his feet, head over all things to the church. Paul's prayer request leads him into glory uh, of Christ. So we see as well that Paul understood the nature and the power of God, and that's reflected in his prayers. What statements do we see in verses 20 to 23, uh, these following verses? What statements tell us about the power and nature of God? Because Paul hits on a, few, on a few of these statements in verses 20 through 23, 
that gives us an idea of, of what he's thinking about when we think about the, the power and the nature of, of God. Yes? Pastor? He can raise the dead. Yes, he can raise the dead. Yes, good. In heavenly places, his position of authority, having seated Christ at his right hand, putting all things under, in subjection under Christ's feet, giving him his head over all things to the church. So we see that Paul is an understanding of the nature and power of God. Paul understands who he is approaching here when he's making these requests. And he understands, uh, and it is seen in verses 20 through 23. So that's what guides his prayer for the believers, the understanding of the strength of God the Father, which is manifested in Christ. And as I was thinking about my own prayer life and, and reflection of this point, I was thinking that I need to have, and we need to have, that similar focused understanding of who God is when we are praying. And we should also have a, a knowledge of what we want to say before we pray. Um, I find it that it, unless I purposely take a list, it, I find it very easy, I just begin to ramble particularly in my private prayer life. Um, I find personally that it's a lot easier in the context of a prayer meeting or praying with somebody else to be focused in what I'm praying for. But when I'm in my private, personal prayer time, I tend to get lost and distracted. And I think that if I can follow, and if we can follow the example of Paul here, that that can eliminate some of that and this is a very short prayer here. Paul, we only have verses 15 through really 23 of this prayer, but yet Paul shows us that he has a clear purpose, and then he expanded upon that clear purpose, and then he also has the ultimate focus being Christ and the glory of God. So if we're going to do this, if I'm going to do this, this means that Scripture must inform our prayers. Where do we get understanding of who Christ is and what the nature and power of God is? We get it from understanding what is revealed to us in Scripture. So when we come to God in prayer, if we are going to have prayer to be with understanding, we must allow Scripture to inform our prayer life, both corporately with one another in, in small groups, wherever we might find ourselves with another believer, and also privately as well, that we must bring our prayers to God with understanding. Secondly, our prayer is to be assisted by the Holy Spirit. And to see this, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 26 and 27, and then we're also going to jump over and look at verse 34, the second half of verse 34. Verse 26 and 27 say, And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Excuse me. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If we jump over to verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So looking at verses 26 and 27, first of all, why does the Holy Spirit need to assist us in our prayers? Why do we need help? Yes, we're weak. We do not know how to pray as we should. We are weak. Why is that? Why are we weak? 
What is it about us that makes us weak and incapable of praying as we should? The flesh, yes, sin. We are sinful beings. And because of that, we do not know how to pray as we should. So the Holy Spirit needs to assist us in our prayers. How does the Holy Spirit do that? How does the Holy Spirit assist us in our prayers? Yes, he makes intercession for us. He intercedes for us on our behalf and helps us with our weaknesses by interceding for us. Who else intercedes for us? Jesus Christ does, yes. We see that in verse 34. So as we are praying, we can have confidence that the Spirit and Christ are interceding on our behalf because we don't know how to pray as we ought. We are weak. We are sinful. We struggle with the flesh. We are tired. We get distracted. But thankfully, Jesus sent the Spirit to help us, and the Spirit aids us in our prayers and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And, because, and the one who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So that is encouraging, to know that we are not alone in our prayers, but to know that the Holy Spirit helps us out and intercedes for us in our weaknesses and in our prayers. Now, going back to Paul's personal prayer life here, his prayer life, it's because of the assistance of the Holy Spirit that we can see two characteristics of Paul's prayers. First, we see the continuous nature of Paul's prayer life. And second, we're going to look at Paul's prayers in faith. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's a verse that might be familiar to most of us. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it's a short verse. It says, pray without ceasing. I don't think Paul would exhort these believers to do this in Thessalonica unless he was doing it himself. And he is encouraging them to pray without ceasing. Uh, MacArthur explains without ceasing like this. He says, quote, without ceasing means constant and defines prayer not as some perpetual activity of kneeling and interceding, but as a way of life marked by a continual attitude of prayer. So Paul is encouraging these believers in Thessalonica not just to go to prayer meeting, not just to get together with one another and pray, but to have prayer be a way of life, to be an attitude, a continual attitude of prayer. Now Paul demonstrates this in his own life. By, we see times where he prays without thought of his location or his circumstances. He does not wait for an ideal time to pray. So just in Acts 16.13, he's praying with women by a riverside. In Acts 16.25, he's in a dungeon in the stocks, and we see him praying. In Acts 20 and verse 36, he's with Ephesian elders on the beach, and he's praying. Acts 21 verse 5, he's on the beach again in Troas with a group of disciples this time, and he's praying again. In Acts 27 verses 23 to 25, during a storm at sea, he's praying again. And also while in prison, we have four examples. I'm just going to read one of them. In Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, known as prison epistles, because they're written uh, while he was in prison, all make mention of Paul praying. Ephesians 1.16 says that Paul, uh, giving thanks, excuse me, uh, I'll start in 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. It says he does not cease. And he's in prison in Ephesians. And the similar language is used in Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, praying for the believers always, without ceasing, 
always making mention of you in my prayers. So we see that Paul is not just wallowing in his sorrow in prison, but he is engaged, praying for the believers. And when he tells the believers in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing, we see him doing it. He is an example of that. His life was marked by that continual attitude of prayer. Believers that he had come into contact with, believers that he had maybe hadn't even met but knew about, were on his mind, praying for them constantly. So Paul had a continuous nature to his prayer life. Paul also prayed in faith. And for this one, we're going to look at Acts 27, 25, the example of, or the, the account of when he is on the ship, he's being sent to Rome. Paul has made defense before uh, Felix, Festus, Agrippa. He appealed to Caesar. Now he is on a ship bound for Rome. And in Acts 27, 25, the ship is caught in a storm. Uh, the, the men are fearful. Um, they're beginning to jettison the cargo and the tackle. And in verse 25, Paul stands up and says, Keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. And Paul was told that the ship and all the men on it would be saved. Now, given what we have seen about Paul to this point, just in the previous example of his continuous nature, I don't think it's difficult to imagine that Paul was praying during the storm. Um, because in verse 23 it says, Paul says, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. The angel tells Paul that the safety of all those on the ship is, is, is sure. Everyone will be saved. And I think that's an answer to prayers that Paul was praying during the journey and during the storm. And his boldness can be seen because of his confidence in the answer that he was given. He didn't question the response. He didn't question the response that he got from the angel and from the spirit. But he stood up and told everybody and said, Take courage. Take courage. Everyone here will be safe. And then he goes on to explain how that has to happen. And then we can, if we were to read on, we would see that Paul arrives safely. Everyone on crew is safe and sound on land, and they end up where they were planning to go. So prayer requires us to let go of the desire to come up with our own solutions. We can't do that. Paul was not on the ship frantically searching for a way to save himself and the people on board. He was praying. He was praying in boldness and in faith that the God who told him that he, that he would going to have to stand before Caesar would follow through. He would end up standing before, before Caesar. So that requires that we have to trust that God will guide and direct our steps. Now, although we, I don't think, will receive audible answers from God, as Paul did on that ship, we should still pray with the same boldness because we know that the Holy Spirit assists our prayers. And we can see that Paul gets answers to his prayers. And he is bold in his prayers. And we should uh, be praying in the same boldness. So the question that I asked myself after looking at that account was, do I really pray, pray, pray with boldness? Do I pray with confidence in the Holy Spirit's assistance? Or am I timid in my prayer life? The more that I, as I reflected, the more I make prayer a way of life, then the more in tune I will be with the Holy Spirit. When it's choppy, when it's broken, when it's not a way of life, 
of course I'm going to wonder if I'm praying according to God's will because I'm not in tune with the Holy Spirit. And I think the more that I can make prayer a way of my own life and an attitude, then the boldness, I think, I'll, I think that I'll start praying with more boldness. And I think that uh, hopefully you can reflect in the same way. Now, I, I have to confess, I do not pray with boldness as often as I ought to, and I think that's because I don't have as consistent a life marked by an attitude of prayer as I ought. And that was, that was a, a challenging thought to have, that if I'm going to pray with boldness, I need to turn my prayer life from a prayer meeting style, let's meet with prayer, to is my life marked by an attitude of prayer? So we need to pray with boldness. And we need to pray with confidence that the Holy Spirit assists us in our prayers. Um, and that life needs to be marked by an attitude of prayer. So thirdly here, prayer, the third prayer principle from Paul's life is that prayer should focus on spiritual concerns. This was another challenging thing for me personally, that prayer should focus on spiritual concerns. It is very rare that we see Paul mentioning physical needs either in his own prayers for others or in the acknowledgement of others' prayers for him. I could only find two times, um, and they're both in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read them. Uh, in, cha- in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, um, he's speaking about affliction that came upon him in Asia, and he says to the people in Corinth, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. So that's one example where he speaks of being saved from a peril of death. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he makes mention of, <clears throat> excuse me, of his own personal uh, physical struggle. In verses 8 through 9, uh, he's talking about the thorn in the flesh that was sent to to buffet him, to keep him from exalting himself. He says, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Those are the only two times that I could find Paul making any mention of physical needs, either in his own prayers, prayers that he had prayed, or acknowledging others' prayers for him. His main focus was on spiritual concerns. And when we pray, we pray asking that God's will be done on earth as it has already been decreed in heaven. So to see an example of this in a prayer of Paul, let's look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So what is the spiritual concern that is seen in this prayer? As you look at verses 9 through 11, what is the main spiritual concern? 
mentioned at the beginning there in verse 9. What about love? Yes, that love would abound. And not just any love, but love would abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So Paul is praying for the believers here in Philippi that their love may abound more and more. So what was the purpose of that request? What, what is the so that statement? Paul tells us why he's praying for these believers as well. Why he's praying that their love may abound more and more. What was the purpose? So that what? Glory to God. Yes. Glory to God. We see that at the end of verse 11. What else? Good. To discern what is best. So that, we see that in verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. To discern what is best. In order, for what purpose? And again, we see Paul getting very purposeful in his prayers here. Right? He doesn't just stop at saying, may their love abound more and more. He tells us in his prayer, and he goes on in his prayer to say, why? So, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, why? What is his concern for the believers in Philippi as well? Why does he want them to approve the things that are excellent? Yes, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So we see that Paul has a purpose behind this spiritual concern. So the approval of the things that are excellent, to be blameless and sincere until the day of Christ and to the glory and praise of God. Once again, we see that the focus of Paul's prayer ultimately is the glory and praise of God. His prayer is for the spiritual concern of the believers in Philippi, but ultimately it's for the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayers and his request, request for prayer were spiritually strategic. And there's a few more examples here. In Romans 15, and I'll just go through a list again. Romans 15, 30 to 33. He asked for deliverance from evil men, and this is for himself, and for that they might have acceptable service for the saints. Ephesians 1, 17, he's asking for a spirit of wisdom for the believers there. Ephesians 6, 9, he's requesting that he would have clarity and boldness in his preaching. Philippians 1, 9, uh, praying that the believers would abound in love, as we just saw. Colossians 1.9, that the believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, that the believers would be counted worthy of their calling. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly. And Philemon verse 6, that the fellowship of the faith may become effective for the believer. So then I ask myself, after seeing these examples, what is the focus of my prayers? What's the focus of my prayers? And as I reflected, I thought, wow, my focus, more often than not, is upon my own personal physical needs and the physical needs of other people. And that was a challenge. And I realized I need to understand where my physical needs fall on the scale of God's importance. And he already told us where they fall. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is speaking here about physical cares and concerns. And this was, uh, I had never really thought about this in connection with my prayer life before looking at the life of Paul. I primarily looked at this passage and thought, okay, I'm not going to worry about things. But do I really not worry about things when I look at my own prayer life? Or is that a reflection of my worry? 
So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So as, we seek, as, I, as I think about how I seek first his kingdom, and as you think about that, I think the question needs to be asked, is that reflected in my prayer life? Or does my prayer life really just bringing a list of physical needs before God? So the final question for this is, why would spiritual needs be considered more strategic than physical? Why is that? Why do you think that spiritual needs would be considered more strategic than physical? And that question really comes straight out of the, the book that we're going, that we're getting this from, because the author of that book says that they were spiritually strategic. So, why would they be considered more strategic than the physical needs? Yes. Yes, exactly. Physical is temporal. We live in a world that is passing away. So when we focus on our physical needs, really we're focusing on the needs primarily uh, in a world that is, that is passing away. Not to say that there's not a place for praying for physical needs, but to understand what is my main focus. Where is the battle mainly being fought? The, the battle is mainly being fought in the spiritual realm. The battle for hearts and souls. Is that being reflected in my prayer life? Or is my prayer life being more reflective of a concern for the here and now rather than eternal things? Seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And the encouragement there is if I do that, then all these things will be added to me. And personally, I think that needed to be reflected in my own prayer life. So then finally, uh, before we get uh, finally, Prayer is not always answered immediately. Prayer is not always answered immediately. And we're going to see this uh, first in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God will answer prayer according to his purposes, not our timing. And that is something that I continually need to remind myself and understand is that when I pray, I am not rubbing a magic lamp. God is not some genie that I bring requests to, but he is God. He is our almighty father, and he will answer our prayers according to his timing and according to his purposes, not ours. So when we focus our prayers on being spiritually strategic, we might not even see the answers to our prayers on this side of heaven. And Paul prayed prayers, knowing that answers might not be seen on this side of heaven. So 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 through 12 says, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the requests in this prayer? There's two main ones, I think, in this, in this prayer. What are the two main ones in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12? Good, that God would count these believers worthy of your calling, that count you worthy of your calling, and I saw one more uh, main one. 
specifically request for the believer. Also in verse 11. To fulfill what? Yes, desire for goodness. Good. That it would count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. So those are the two main requests here. So then I'm going to look at Colossians 1 then quickly. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, it's one request, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, second request, to please him in all respects, another request, bearing fruit in every good work, another request, increasing in the knowledge of God, another one, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness. And patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, in this short four verses, Paul is asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects, bear fruit in every good work, increase in the knowledge of God, be strengthened with all power, and attain all steadfastness and patience. Now, how many of these requests, after Paul was done praying, do you think he was expecting to get a letter back from uh, the believers in Colossae and Thessalonica saying, Paul, we did it. We accomplished all your requests. How many do you think he might have seen? Not many. I think maybe two, and that from a human perspective. Um, you know, being counted worthy of your calling, other people can look at us and say, you know, wow, they can say, you know, what a, you know, you're an example to us of your walk before the Lord, but we know in our, that we're still sinful beings, so that's not going to be completely seen. Um, so, so maybe only two, walking in a, in a manner worthy. So we see that Paul is praying these requests, and we might not even see it. He might not even see these believers ever until, until heaven. So he's praying knowing that his spiritually strategic prayers might not be answered here on earth. So even when we pray for physical needs, we may not see the answer that we want right away according to our timing. And the example, again, in Paul's life is the example from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, you don't have to turn there. Just the example of that thorn in the flesh. Paul says he prayed for this three times. And... The answer was always, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So even when Paul prayed for the physical need, he did not get the answer that he wanted. So we need to be aware that we might not get the answers that we want to hear according to our timing in prayer. Paul did not. And when we are praying in a spiritually strategic manner, we might not even see the answers to our prayer on this side of heaven. So as I finished up looking at these four different prayer principles, I ended up asking myself three questions. Um, and so I'm going to ask the same questions um, to you for personal application. So the first question that I ask myself is, what do my prayers mainly focus on? What, in my honest reflection, what is the main focus of my prayers? Now, I don't have actual percentages, but I know that in my own experience, that my prayers for my own physical needs and the needs of those around me, they outweigh, they greatly outweigh the spiritual needs 
especially of those, those around me. So I need to change the focus of my prayers. Um, and if I'm going to end up praying, and if we're going to end up praying for the spiritual needs of those people around us, how do we do that? What has to be done? Because that doesn't happen by accident. What do you think? Say that again. Pray scripture. Yes, absolutely. Pray scripture. What else? Yes, finding out what those needs are. We need to be intentional in our conversations with each other as well, and then go and pray the scriptures that would apply to those spiritual needs. When we're talking to one another and we ask each other how we're doing, I just think to myself, how often is my answer a physical answer? How often is my request for prayer when somebody asks me how I'm doing a request for a physical need or a physical concern? Uh, am I really even helping other believers out in entering into my spiritual battles and my spiritual concerns? And that takes a level of vulnerability that can be uncomfortable because it's very, we don't really want to open ourselves up and let other people know about our sin. That's a scary thing. But if we're going to be praying for each other in a spiritually strategic manner, then I think that's something that has to be done. And we need to be trusting in our believers who also struggle with sin, that they will be praying for us. We can bear one another's burdens, not just physical burdens, but spiritual burdens. So the second question I asked myself then was, what passions am I cultivating in my life? We can determine what Paul's passion was because it was demonstrated by what he spent his time on. Paul spent his time before his conversion on persecuting the church. We know that he was passionate about that. After his conversion, he was passionate about preaching the gospel. He traveled all over the place, planting churches and preaching the gospel. And our passions, my passion, can be seen by what we spend our time on most. So if I want to have a prayer life that is passionate, I have to spend time on it. And if we want a prayer life that is passionate, we have to spend time on it. As I reflect on what I really spend my time on, that's really not it. Not as much as I would want it to be. So again, I have to and we have to try to cultivate that way of life, prayer life, that is passionate. And we're going to spend time on it. We need to make time for it. It doesn't just happen by accident. But if we're going to be passionate in our prayers, we have to spend time on our prayers. So then the third question that I asked myself was, does my love for Christ demonstrate itself in my prayer life? As I thought about Paul's prayers, every prayer that I saw of Paul's ended at the glory of Christ. Does my love for Christ demonstrate itself in my prayer life? Paul's passionate living and his passionate prayer life were so coordinated that oftentimes it's hard to see what flows from what. It's really one thing. It demonstrates itself as one thing. So a passionate life should not just demonstrate itself in passionate prayer, but really it should be the same thing. And that's a challenge. Some, especially, I, it's a challenge. In, in our often busy, fragmented lives, we're here one, two days a week. We're at work, we're at home, we're with friends. How are we, how am I, going to lead a passionate life that demonstrates itself in passionate prayer. Christ would permeate every portion of our lives, both public and private. And in the context of this study, specifically talking now about prayer. So then I ask myself the question as well, if my prayer life does not reflect my claim to love Christ, then what does that say about my love for Christ? If I'm really not cultivating a passionate, personal prayer life, then do I really love Christ as much as I claim to? 
And that's a, that was a challenging question for me to reflect upon. Because if we look at the life of Paul, it's hard to tell where his love for Christ stopped and ended because it didn't. I mean, it permeated every portion of his life, including his prayer life. And how often in my own personal prayers, in my short, quick, let's get it over with, I got things to do. I have to confess far too often. Or throughout the day, you know, my, my pray without ceasing are those short bursts up, Lord, help me now, Lord, help me now, help me with this, help this person rather than having Christ just so permeate my life that I am thinking about spiritually strategic needs almost constantly, like Paul. That's a challenge. But I know that I can't do this, we can't do this by ourselves. And as we saw with Paul, how God miraculously broke into his life in the middle of his persecution of churches, only God can change the heart and lead us in growth. So my prayer for all of us here and for myself as well, that he would give us hearts that would seek to love him. And that that love that we would desire to have that love be overflowing with prayer into our prayer life. That our passion, that my passion would be for those spiritually strategic concerns. That our passion would be for the glory of Christ in all areas of my life, all aspects of my life, just as we saw with Paul. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you for the demonstration of your love in his life and your choosing in his life. Thank you for the passion that he demonstrated for your glory and for your church and how that was reflected in his prayers for himself and for the believers that he was praying for and writing to. Father, may we, here in this place, have the same overflowing spiritual concern and passion for, for Christ's glory and for his church. Help us, Lord, to be focusing not mainly on the here and now, but on eternity, on the expansion of your kingdom. Lord, may we be growing in our love for you and may that love for you be reflected in our passionate prayer lives in our conversations with one another in the way we interact with unbelievers Father help us now as we would be looking forward to singing your praises and worshiping you hearing your word preached Father increase our love and our knowledge of you for the glory of Christ I pray this in Jesus name Amen